Good morning. I hope you guys have all had an awesome holiday season, an awesome Christmas. Um, let's pray before we start, all right? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to come this morning and and to be with these other parts of our family in our church to worship you and to learn from you. I just pray that your Holy Spirit would be among us, that you would quicken our minds and our hearts and, and let us understand what it is that you want us to hear this morning. Hide, uh, hide me behind yourself and your power, I pray in the name of Jesus. And let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you this morning, we pray in the name of Christ. Well, good morning again. My name is uh, Fran Nesta. Most of you know me, but some of you may not. I serve as one of the elders here at OCCA. And on behalf of uh, all of us, the five men who wear that mantle of responsibility and our pastor, we wish you a Merry Christmas. And <clears throat> I want to ask you a question. How many of you have Christmas traditions? You can put your hands up. Okay. For those of you that are watching online, there are three hands up, okay, which lets you know that we are in a room full of sinners who are lying, okay? <clears throat> Let me ask a more specific question. How many of your Christmas traditions include a Christmas movie? Yeah, there are some more hands up. So we're more excited about movies than we are about other traditions. And I don't know exactly why that is, but I'm going to ask you, to, I'm going to show you some Christmas movies and the years in which they came out, the years that they were released. Some of that information may be new to some of you, and if this is a movie you're watching or planning to watch, just put your hand up, okay? How about that one? Okay, It's a Wonderful Life, Miracle on 34th Street, Night. Well, there's multiple of some of these. I mean, you know, once you have a good story, you can remake it. Christmas Carol, for example, many ver versions. Uh, George C. Scott was Scrooge in one of these things. 54, White Christmas, huh? The consummate Christmas movie, which I haven't seen since I was much younger and which we are laying off to do yet this Christmas season. So we'll have to do that. Uh, 61, Babes in Toyland, and that's Funicello. How many of you remember her from the Mickey Mouse Club? Yep, there's a few of us that old. 64, Rudolph, animation at its finest. Followed by Charlie Brown in 1965. Followed by The Grinch in 1966. Followed by The Little Drummer Boy in 1968. And then Frosty the Snowman in 1969. And then finally we get back to people. <laughs> no more cartoons. Albert Finney is Scrooge in this one. And then the Christmas story. Okay? Truly, how many of you have seen this? Put your hands up. Now, how many of you really like it? Uh, I saw it at I saw it at the theater. Oh, you mean in a movie theater? There it is, folks. You heard it right there. Tom Mayrant went to a movie theater four times to see this, to see this movie. 
I, on the other hand, have only seen this story once, and it was done on the stage at the Barrow. I have never seen the movie, although I have taken a tour of the Christmas house in Cleveland, and it's, it's a worthwhile tour. Okay, 1985, Santa Claus the movie. If you have not seen this movie, my wife will speak up to you and say, this is a Christmas movie you should watch. We had some students over last year. None of them had seen it. We played it for them. It's delightful. I just promise you that. Dudley Moore is in it. John Lithgow is in it. So just so you have a few names to look for it for when you're trying to find it. Neither one of them are on the picture there, though. 1989. How about it? Huh? The little lights aren't twinkling, Clark. <laughs> and then this one. 1990. How could Home Alone have come out 30 years ago? How could that be? 1994, The Santa Claus. 19, oh, whoops. Jeez, I don't know what happened here. I want to go backwards. Why am I not doing that? There we go. The Grinch in Live People version, 2000, okay? Elf. How could this be, movie be 17 years old? It still seems like a new movie to me. It still seems like a new movie. It's one of the funniest ones I think I've ever seen. I laugh every time. Polar Express have also not watched this one, but plan to. Several people back there are very enthusiastic about the Polar Express. Wow. Why, what is it that all movies have that makes us drawn to them? They all do one thing. They all tell a story. We like a story. Jesus taught in stories. That should be a reason enough to tell them. Every movie has a story, and our stories this past year, for many of us, have been filled with uncertainty, confusion, strife, disappointment, questions with no answers, or conflicting answers, and a general sense of a loss of trust in so many areas that we don't know really what to believe. Or who's really telling the truth? Yeah, but 2021's right around the corner. And what will it bring? And how do we walk into that new year with confidence when we've lived through a year that hasn't had very much to, we could depend on? So I want to suggest this movie. Here's a Christmas movie for you, Back to the Future. This movie, if you remember, is about what it would be like to know what's going to happen before it happens. Before it happens. Now, God alone is outside of time, and he knows all that stuff, but I want to suggest that the Bible provides us with examples and lessons that enable us, without knowing the future in terms of specifics, to step into it and to step forward with confidence, even in times like this. So I want to consider changing the title of this movie to Backing Into the Future. And that's the title of today's message, Backing Into the Future. And it addresses the matter of moving into the new year with confidence. Now I'm going to look for a minute at an example from history about how God is involved in the details of preparing us for the future that awaits us and most of you know the story of the Israelites coming out of Egypt, right? Um, heading for a promised land. It was just a few million people that did this. 
they didn't have restrictions at that time on crowd control. And they came out of the bondage of Egypt because God led them that way. And he was taking them to another land that he had promised to Abraham, the father of their race. God arranged all of the circumstances that led to Pharaoh releasing them. And God led them out and led them through the promised land and on the way gave them the Ten Commandments and then further instructed them on on how to organize themselves as they were camping through this journey. And that plan of God shows us an important lesson we need to keep in mind. There were 12 tribes, as you know, and these tribes are right around here and they're camped in this arrangement, probably, and they're camped around this thing right here in the middle, the tabernacle, which was the place that they were instructed to build by God. He gave them very specific plans for this, and they put it all together, and it was a place where his presence would go so that the Israelites had a spot to which they could direct themselves on. Notice that there are three groups of people These are three clans of the tribe of Levi that are around the tabernacle because they were the ones that were in charge of the tabernacle. They were the ones that were were assembling it, uh, that were taking care of it. They they took care of all the stuff that was in it. There were different... um, The Ark of the Covenant was in there, uh, a laver, the candlesticks. There were all sorts of things that God gave them plans for. But this is how they were supposed to camp. Four directions, north, east, south, and west, and everybody had their spot. In all of these instructions, everything in the instructions, which you can read in Numbers chapter 2 or 3, is directed from its proximity to the place where God would be among them, which was that tabernacle. And where is the tabernacle? It's right in the center. It's right in the center of the camp. And that's kind of our first point. God has to be our focus. God has to be in the middle of what we do. He has to be in what we're we're looking for. Our lives should be arranged around the centrality of God with us. Everything here was positioned in relationship to the presence of God, the tabernacle, and God could have described where the tribe of Judah was in relation to the tribe of Dan. He could have said that. You guys from Dan line up here according to where Judah lines up. But he didn't do that. The reference point was always God. It's hard to underestimate the trouble that people get into in their walk with God because they position and measure themselves in reference to other people. Anybody here guilty of that? I mean, I am. I look around and say, man, I'm better off than that person is. Or I wish I could be more like that person. You know, and and God's got to be our focus, not other people. It's not an intellectual acknowledgement of God either. It's not just this. It's not knowing that there is a God and, you know, all that stuff. It's relational. And, And that relation is the key to understanding how we can approach this next year with confidence. Keep this in mind as we look into what Paul said in Romans chapter 8. And there's a lot of wonderful truth in this chapter. And we don't have time this morning to mine all of it. Uh, But we are going to skim through and hit the highlights and try to connect a thread here 
Uh, and we're, we're going to start with probably the verse that's most quoted out of this whole chapter, and that's verse 828. And we know that in all things, God works for good for those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. How many of you have heard that before? How many of you have even said that? Certainly we have. Um, we've all heard this verse, and we've heard it many times. We've experienced things in our life, unfortunately, that are unpleasant. And we know other people who have experienced them or have experienced even worse. We get the diagnosis that we don't want. We watch as somebody that we love lives day to day in a slow downward slide toward death because of a disease that they didn't want. We pick up the phone and we hear of a serious accident or a missing child or some other tragedy. We show up at work. We find that our job is coming to an end that they, because the company's closing its doors. Or our spouse tells us that they no longer wish to be married to us. Or somebody drives a vehicle into our neighborhood and blows it up. There are any number of things that happen to us that are hard to understand and harder to take. So it's not, this isn't the verse that we want to hear when we're in the middle of that. It's not the verse that we want to hear when, we're, when it's marked, our life is marked by tragedy and loss and stress instead of contentment and peace. The truth of this verse, though, it's powerful. And it deserves our attention so we can understand just what God means when he says this to us. In order to do that, we've got to look a little further to see the context of the statement. But I want to give you the context of Romans to start with here. In this, in this book, Paul is discussing a problem we all have. And that problem is the problem of sin. We are sinners and we need a savior. We are incapable of reestablishing on our own the relationship that man once had with God. We can't do that on our own. We come to the saving relationship, that restoration of that, by faith and by faith alone. And in that, we're set free from this power of sin. Unfortunately, there's a struggle going on between our desire to please ourselves and our desire to please God. And the question here is, how do we stop sinning? How do we stop it? Paul asks that question in this book. In fact, he really asks it and dwells on it a little bit in the chapter before chapter 8 and chapter 7. And he says, I, I want to do the right things, but I don't. I don't understand how that happened. How am I going to get free from this? And the answer is in the open verses of chapter 8. Therefore... There is no now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now verse 1 explains that our guilt is removed and verse 2 declares that in no uncertain terms that we are no longer slaves to sin but we are truly set free. 
Then Paul states very clearly that it is the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit within us, that enables us to live a life in harmony with him. Now the rest of the chapter is about living this way and begins with the first thing, which is a change of mind. And that's in verses 5 to 8. Pay attention to how many times Paul uses this word or makes a reference to your mind. Verse, verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. But the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Now this idea of a changed mind is reinforced later in Romans 12, chapter 2, or verse 2, where Paul instructs us to have our minds renewed. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what is God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is what being born again does in us. It, it's the new life that includes a mind transformed to think the way we should think, to turn our thoughts away from ourselves and what we want to God and what he wants, and by extension, than to others as we begin to see their needs understand those needs and act to love them better in verses 9 to 13 he goes on and says this you however are not in the realm of the flesh but are in the realm of the spirit and if indeed the spirit of God lives in you and if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ they do not belong to Christ but if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh, to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Now, Paul is not speaking of life and death in just a physical sense here, but life and death for eternity. It's pretty difficult for us to not be focused on life right now. After all, it is what we know and what we experience and what we see and how we feel and what we think about every day. Shifting our thoughts away from that temporary existence, even for a moment, requires that we change our thinking, that our mind be renewed, to think about things in a new way, 
And we can think this way because, as Paul says, we are his children. We are his children. Adopted into his family. Having all the rights and privileges that go along with that. And the next verse is, Give us the reason for this necessary shift in thinking by spotlighting what we can expect because we're God's children. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And if we are God's children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in His sufferings in order that we may also share in His glory. Suffering? Did did you say suffering? (laughs) You mean there's going to be suffering? Yeah, there is. But look what Paul says about that. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And because of their exercise of free will, Adam and Eve opened the door for pain and death and suffering to come into this world. The broken relationship with God the Father extended into the fabric of creation itself. That's where suffering and frustration and loneliness and loss and all of that mess began back in the garden. And the loss wasn't just ours. In verses 19, Paul writes, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. On the windswept prairies of Oklahoma, I'm your intrepid host, L.A. Marzulli. This is Paul. Wow. has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Now at the fall, God frustrated life itself in the hopes that you and I would never be satisfied without Him. 
that we would let go of trying to do life on our own and instead choose to step into his love and receive the freedom and the glory that he gives to his children. Life as God's children is about hope. Remember that verse that Pastor Tim read at the beginning? The little benediction thing? He would pray that we would have hope. Life as God's children is about hope. It's not about things being really great today. Hope looks forward. One day, we're going to have a body that isn't prone to getting older. That happened to everybody here this morning, didn't it? We woke up and we were all a day older. And you stack enough of those days together, pretty soon you pay attention to the fact that some parts of your body don't work the way they once did. That's a fact. It's a fact. One day we're going to have a body that's not prone to that. That's not prone. Uh, thoughts that aren't automatically bent toward greed or bent toward lust or bent toward selfishness. Hope means our joy doesn't depend on what we have now, but on what's coming, on what we wait for patiently. Yeah, but what about now? We're living now. Life brings suffering and frustration. And the next verses speak to that. And it's the Spirit that helps us in that. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit. And because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Did you hear that? The Spirit is there to help us in our weakness. Even so much as praying when we're so overcome with our need for God or whether we're so overcome with our understanding of who He is, the Spirit steps in. The Spirit makes that communication. Here's how the message says this passage. Same two verses. Meanwhile, the moment we get tired in the waiting. You ever do, is that you? Ever? Are you ever tired? The moment we get tired in the waiting, God's Spirit is right alongside helping us along. And if we don't know how or what to pray, it doesn't matter. He does our praying in us and for us, making prayer out of our wordless sighs, our aching groans. He knows us far better than we know ourselves and knows our pregnant condition and keeps us present before God. I don't know how many of you have had a chance to see the, the musical Hamilton that was released on Disney Plus back in July. But Eliza Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton's wife, suffers two great losses in that in that story. One is the loss of her son who dies in a duel and the other is the loss of her husband who dies in a duel. 
And the very last thing you see in the show, the very last thing you see when she is, when her son dies earlier, the very last thing in that scene and the very last thing in the show is this groan that she lets out because her emotions are just so full that there aren't words, that there aren't words. And some of you have known grief like that. And some of you have had the experience of being overwhelmed by God's goodness. Jeff alluded to that this morning. When, when you're singing a song and there's some phrase in there that points you to God and you're just so overwhelmed, the word just won't come out. It just won't come out. The Spirit's there to do that. And that brings us back to verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good for those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, if you're God's child, that means that you're in his family. And then you know from this verse that God is working everything in your life for your good for your good. Now it doesn't say that everything in life is good. Because as we know, it's not. And it also doesn't say that God is the one who's making everything happen. He says that he works in it, whatever it is, for your good. Well, what's that good? What is the good that he's trying to accomplish? Well, the verse ends with this phrase. His purpose okay so what is his purpose when things go bad we quote this verse don't we and try to remind ourselves or somebody else that good is coming what is the good how does anything good come out of this i remember early in my teaching career when a student of mine was killed in a car accident. She pulled out from her apartment complex. Someone slammed into her. She was gone, just like that. Here in one minute, gone the next minute. And her mother looked right at me and said, there is nothing good about this. There is nothing good about this. And we know people that feel that way. And we know people that have gone through their life carrying the weight of that hurt and the anger that comes from it. But there is good coming. In the next verse, listen. For God, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. Now God, who is outside of time, remember we said that, saw ahead, and he knew that you would decide to follow him. 
He knew that you would decide. That's what foreknew means. He didn't force that on you. God doesn't grab you by the throat and say, come to me. He puts the choice out there. But he knows what you're going to decide. That's what foreknowledge is. And he also uses this word, predestined. Now, wait a minute. Predestined. Doesn't that mean that God decided everything? That it's predetermined? That it's, we don't, well, it doesn't just mean that. This is the Greek word that's translated predestined. It's, I got to look at my paper here and find out how to say it. There it is. Parizo. Parizo. It's, and it's translated predetermined, but it's also translated this, to set out a path in advance. So you see, God's not forcing our steps. He's marking our path. That's what predestined means. God has gone before us and marked the path through whatever it is that we're, that we're facing. And why? Where does that path take us? To conform to the image of his son. So everything that we experience, good or bad, he's using as, he, as we walk the path that he's prepared through those circumstances, he's using that to conform us, to make us, you and me, like Jesus. That's the good news. That's what Paul's talking about. Here's what that says in the message. God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. He decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. The son stands first in the line of humanity. He restored. We see the original and intended shape of our lives there in him. And after God made that decision of what his children should be like, he followed it up by calling people by name. And he called them by, after he called them by name, he set them on a solid basis with himself. And then after getting them established, he stayed with them to the end, gloriously completing what he had begun. Every suffering, every frustration has its purpose. God doesn't cause those things, but he marks a path through them. Every struggle shapes you as he forms you into the image of his son. We were made in that image. Remember what it said in Genesis? And God made man in his image. In the image of God, he made them. Male and female, he made them. We were made that way. But the fall spoiled that. And we cannot restore it by our own efforts. That's why Jesus came. Colossians 1.15, Paul writing again. The Son is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. Here's a great illustration of this that Pastor Chris Langham used. Have you ever seen a kid doing something and there's just something intangible that makes you say, just like their dad. This is the good that God is working for. This is the good that God is working for. Not your wealth, not your comfort. He marked out a path through every trial to remake you in his image to be just like 
your dad. And Paul tells us in verse 30 how he did that. For those he pre and those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. Remember that verse earlier in the chapter? For I consider these present sufferings nothing compared to what? Compared to the glory that will re be revealed in us. The glory revealed in you. That's the pattern that we call sanctification. We're predestined. Now why did he, why did he use that? He used it not just to remind us of the past, but he used it to say to us, look, I know what you're facing. And because I know what you're facing and I make a path through that, then I can say to you all things, in all things, and mean it. Not just in some things, but in all things. And when we come to that understanding, we understand that he's called us and draws us to him. And in coming to him, we receive forgiveness. That's the justification part. And ultimately, one day, we will have those new bodies. And we will be glorified. That's the process. And verse 31 to 35 wraps all of this up. So what shall we, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. No one. Christ Jesus, also, who, also, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who so sh shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Armed with this truth, we can step into tomorrow knowing that God is already there. In relation to Him, we can face anything because He, we know He is at the center. He is our focus. We can move into the future with confidence because God's already there. You can't live a fulfilled life above the circumstances apart from a real relationship with God because the circumstances will bury you. Think about this. When you fall in love with someone, it's almost impossible to get you to think or to get you to not think about them. Go back to when you were in school and you had your eye on that somebody. Whose name are you writing in your notebook in the margins? Right? 
who are you calling? Who are you trying to make intersections happen with? Oh, I just bumped into you. Oh, you know, just happens along like that. You, that. It's that love relationship that draws us to that. That's what God has done for us. It's the same with parents. Who are you thinking about right after your, your kid's born? Are you thinking about the Steeler game? Probably not. You're thinking about that child. That one that is alive in your hands. That's the apple of your eye. And when those kids are growing up, you're that way for them. Your kids become the apple of your eye. And the object of your thinking. And so it should be with our father, with our Abba, with our daddy. Everybody who is a parent, hopefully, has, has known what it's like to have their kid run and jump into your arms. Is there anything better? That's the way we should be with God. Even in this time of uncertainty, we can be sure He understands. He understands everything about these days and, and He desires only that we allow Him to make us like His Son. To hold us. To welcome us. To change us. So what does all this have to do with backing into the future? Well, it has everything to do with it. How is any enemy or any frustration going to compete with God? Who's worked it out ahead? Who knows the end? And he gave up his own son for us. Is there anything he won't do? It takes care of how we should experience the future. But, but what about the backing in part? You know, you said backing in. Yes, well... Uh, when you're backing in or backing up, okay, I'm backing up. All I have to do is look up. And what do I see? I see where I was. I see what happened before. And in that, I see God's faithfulness. The Israelites that were in that camp, when they left Egypt, every time they encountered God in a powerful way, Every time something happened, what did they do? They built a memorial. They stacked up stones. They made a marker so that they could look back on that marker and be reminded of his faithfulness. When they crossed the Red Sea, when they got water, when the water came from the rock, when the manna came, constantly, marker after marker to remember. And you can't, you can't see the marker back there unless you look back. Seeing where we have been is seeing God's faithfulness to us. The Israelites did that, and we should too. Verses 37 to 39 are so good that I, I think we should read them together. So join me in them, will you? No. 
in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How many of you are facing the future and your heart, or, or somebody you know that's facing the future, their heart is more full of concern and worry than it is of confidence. Let me invite you to just close your eyes for a minute and think about that. Are you looking ahead more with worry, more with concern, more with questions? Or are you looking ahead with confidence and, and peace and expectancy? Let me challenge you to back into the future. Remind yourself about God's love and His faithfulness. Trust that your Father, your Abba, has made the path for you through whatever it is that you're going through. And that He will not only see you through it, but He will use it to make you like Jesus. I'm going to invite the guys to come back up and I'm going to close with prayer. I just want to say to you that uh, during this last song, and, and nobody that's up here, whoever picked the songs up, had no idea of what I would be speaking about this morning. None. But these songs have all tied into what you've heard. God is perfect in all of his ways. Didn't we sing it? There was a phrase in the last uh, one of the songs, I can hardly speak because we're so overwhelmed. That's the root of the confidence we can have. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, it is so easy to be paralyzed by these things in life that seem to go wrong. We cry out to you in those times. We're usually asking the question, why? Or why me? Maybe the better questions should be, what are you trying to show me? What are you trying to teach me? How are you using this to form me into your image? Oh, Father, give us trust enough to keep our hope in those times when we have only questions. Strengthen us to hang on to that hope until you reveal to us how your spirit has used those seasons for good. we know that you are